This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. And I pray that you'd give us understanding in our minds and in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're invited to listen to the voice of the teacher found in the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. And the teacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In some translations, it reads meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun is nothing more than a chasing after the wind. So what should I say? Good luck. You're on your own. <laughs> Thankfully not. It's a good thing the lectionary gives us more than one reading, or else this would be a very bleak text upon which to preach. And I was tempted uh, not to use this passage from Ecclesiastes today, but it's not a good idea just to look at the more familiar or the easy bits, if there are any, in the Bible. And actually, did you notice the psalm? I mean, it ends with, we're like beasts and an ox, and I mean, it, there's a common thread here. Oh, and the gospel reading. So although the writings in Ecclesiastes were written thousands of years ago, they still have a very contemporary ring to them. I'm sure there are lots of people who would be able to identify with the message of doom and gloom and hopelessness found in the opening chapters of that book. And if you want to go home and read the book, make sure you get all the way to the end because there is hope. And in the story that Jesus told from today's gospel, the rich fool found to his dismay and great cost something of the truth of Ecclesiastes. There he was. He'd worked hard, harvested a bumper crop, torn down his barns to build bigger barns, and then just as he sits back to retire, to take it easy, to enjoy his wealth, to eat, drink, and be merry, God says to him in this story, you fool. This very night, your life is required of you. All the wealth and success and hopes and aspirations of the rich fool came to nothing. I imagine we can all think of wealthy people who seem to be like that man, whether they're the pop stars or football idols or multi-million dollar lottery winners. Did you see, somebody won, what was it, $1.3 billion yesterday on the lottery? Boy, I hope, I hope they're tithing. Um, <laughs> if, they need a, if they need a place, let them know. Um, and you know, so often we see the mega wealthy and their lives crumble. And, and fall into ruin. But it's not just the mega wealthy that the writer of our passage from Ecclesiastes suggests live a life of meaninglessness. He's, he talks about pleasure, laughter, great projects, building houses, planting vineyards, all achieving nothing. And then he turns his attention to gaining knowledge and wisdom. And there's a fair amount of knowledge and wisdom in this room today when I think of all the degrees you folks have got. And while wisdom seems to be better than folly, what do I gain from being wise, he asks. I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. 
In their busyness and their pursuit of happiness, many people try to block out any sense of meaninglessness. Indeed, so busy are they chasing after the wind that they fail to see that that's what they're doing. But Ecclesiastes and the story that Jesus told about the rich fool can be a salutary lesson. As someone once said, none of us will get out of this alive. Try as we might not to face it, death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one dies. Disillusionment with pleasure and leisure, with wealth and material gain, with intellectual achievements, could be the cry of many a person today. So what are we to make of this? Are we to become utterly depressed and fatalistic, or is there more to it? I think the clue to understanding this quite challenging passage from Ecclesiastes lies in the three little words that keep recurring. Did you notice them? What were they? I'll help you. Under the sun. And those words appear four times in the section we read this morning and 27 times in the book as a whole. And the depressing views that are expressed there are done so in the context of the observable material world. What it is that we see around us, quite literally, under the sun. Albert Camus, one of the founding philosophers of the existential movement, once said, I can feel this heart inside me and I conclude that it exists. I can touch this world and I also conclude that it exists. All my knowledge ends at this point. The rest is hypothesis. And what Camus was saying there seems to be at least analogous to what's being said in the first part of the book of Ecclesiastes. But how sad to limit reality only to that which we can experience under the sun. When we do that, when we limit what is real just to what we can touch and feel and hold and smell and see and hear, then frankly we are to be pitied. When we ignore God, his words, his works, his presence in the world and in our lives, then what remains is a form of idolatry that boldly proclaims that only what I can experience in this material world is real. And sadly, desperately sadly, there are people who believe and act as if that were true as they go about their lives under the sun with no time for God. And the most tragic thing, it seems to me, for those who live their lives as if what we find under the sun is all that there is, is that there's no way then of dealing with the meaninglessness that is so apparent in our lives. There's no point of reference beyond ourselves. Now, of course, people try to make sense out of life and the chance things that happen, the pain, the suffering, and even death itself. But you can't insert values into an absurd world without there being any external point of reference. Or if, if you do, then those values will be ineffective. After all, who's to say which values are right? 
Everything simply becomes relative and subjective. If you choose what's right for you and I choose what's right for me, how does one pick between us? How do you choose between the values of a philanderer and a philanthropist? How do you choose, say, between an ultra-right-wing racist nationalist and a super-left-wing woke deconstructionalist? Now, I know I'm using hyperbole and extremes, although there are plenty of real examples today. But if we are all a law unto ourselves, well, then who can ever call someone to account? And I think we know that these questions are born not out of mere academic philosophizing, but rather out of a sense of frustration as we look around us. And these big issues stare us in the face of our nation as we become ever more politically polarized. Ecclesiastes challenges us to face the reality of lives lived only under the sun. The first step to finding meaning is to broaden our horizons. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians at Colossae, urges them to seek the things that are above. He writes, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Not, he could have said, on everything that is merely under the sun. You may have heard it said of a person that he or she is so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use. The challenge here, however, is perhaps the other way around. Don't be so earthly minded that you're of no heavenly use. And later in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer also points us heavenward, showing that while all may be vanity and meaningless under the sun, there is an eternity that has meaning with God at the beginning and at the end. Only as we look beyond the finite to the infinite can we find meaning and purpose in our lives. And this is not pie in the sky when we die. Setting our minds on what is above is for today, and it involves us taking action. Jesus says in the story, after the story he told, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And St. Paul sets out some of the practical ramifications in our passage from Colossians. Because we have been raised uh, with Christ, because our hope lies in God, we're to live our lives in the light of these realities. Christian conduct then arises primarily not out of an effort to be good, but rather through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through our belonging to the body of Christ. The body of Christ here today, now, is the church. We are his body. And what this means as, is that to the lonely and lost, to the empty rich, to everyone who struggles with life as being a cruel case of vanity, vanity, all is vanity, we, the church, 
have something so valuable to offer. What we have is real, life-changing and lasting. We have Jesus. And what he brings is nothing less than the way to find meaning in life. Indeed, Jesus and Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life. Our confidence, our hope, and our security lie not in the transient things of life, not in our work, not in our health, not in the empty promises we hear in the media, not in a myriad of different spiritualities that are all around us, not in families, not in ourselves, but ultimately in Jesus. My hope is in him. What about you? And this hope is not something that we hold by ourselves or repeat like a mantra or grit our teeth to believe. It is the hope that billions of Christians have clung to for more than two two millennia. I can't say it. Millennia. Long time. (laughs) And today, it is a hope that we share and in which we can encourage one another. For it is together that we're a part of the body of Christ. We are the ones to whom God has sought after. He's the one. We are the people that God has sought after, that he has loved and wooed. We are among those whom Jesus calls his brothers and sisters. What then can we expect through being a part of this family of God, the body of Christ, which is the church. It's this. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now I know that too often we don't always experience that peace. And sometimes that can be because we fail to get rid of those things that Paul tells us we need to get rid of. Paul calls us to take drastic action. He writes, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Get rid of such things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language. Get rid of those things. And the Christian life that Paul is talking about is seen in the here and now through our Christian lives, through how we live, through our behavior. And these evil practices are to be put to death because if they're not faced and dealt with, then like an infected wound, they will spread and affect the whole person, the whole body, the whole church. And Paul doesn't mince his words when he speaks of the consequences of not dealing with these things that come between us and God, these things that rob us of our peace, these things that lead to meaninglessness. And he writes, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. God's wrath, or wrath, is the righteous reaction of true holiness, justice, and goodness in the face of wickedness, exploitation, and evil of every kind. 
And that's why it's a good thing, even though it's a sobering thing. And the wrath begins to take effect in the degrading effects of sin itself. And if unchecked and unforgiven, sin will lead ultimately to final judgment. But long before that, we see the horrors of sin and hell on earth. I mean, yes, we see it on a grand scale in the horrors of war and famine. We see it in corruption. We see it in families. We see it all around us. As I've quoted before, sin will take you further than you want to go, hold you longer than you want to stay, and exact a price that you cannot pay. That's what sin does. Um, you know, sin is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter. Those who continually choose to go their own way rather than God's way and practice these things that Paul is warning against begin, in a sense, to lose their God-given humanity. They, 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 they shrivel up. If you want to read a great analogy of that, parable of that, read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. But if unchecked, they demonstrate the very opposite of the resurrection and the life as they begin to die even while still alive. Well, how then can we experience this new life? St. Paul tells us, we clothe ourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. It is as we draw closer to God and put to death those things that come between us and God, that the image of God in which we are created is restored, and then we can begin to make sense of life. And we can't do this alone. And this is where the power of Christian community comes into play, because it's here that we learn to speak the truth. We're not afraid of truth. And we speak the truth in love to one another. This is something that we do. It's something that we live. It's something that I've tried to do since I moved to Pittsburgh 19 years ago in a very concrete way. I have a standing early morning meeting every week with two Christian friends, and by God's grace, we share our lives together in honesty and humility, in good times and in bad. And I also have a slightly wider trusted circle of friends who can speak truth into my life. Indeed, I want them to. I invite them to. I ask them to. And they do. And I also into theirs. And I know that many of you have similar friendships, groups, whatever. And some have found this a reality in one of our community groups or perhaps in other contexts. But I exhort you, don't try to be a solo Christian. That is not how God designed us to function. We need both the Holy Spirit and we need one another. For it is as we bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another, that we will experience God's peace 
ruling in our hearts day by day. And what a powerful witness to others this can be. Paul exhorts us, in whatever we're doing, in our words and in our actions, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The hopelessness and the meaninglessness that so many people experience in their lives give us a wonderful opportunity to share with our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, where our hope lies. And you don't have to do that in a preachy kind of way. You don't have to pretend that you're perfect or have it all figured out, because obviously you haven't. Rather, in the midst of the clamor of the news cycle, the constant barrage from social media, the day-to-day struggles, very real struggles that people deal with, we can have a quiet confidence in God. When we, individually and together, demonstrate what we believe by the way that we live, we provide a powerful testimony to the hope that we have as Christians and a powerful antidote to all the craziness. As the scriptures enjoin us, let us always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's in 1 Peter. And so we are called this morning afresh by God to be a model of hope, of community, of meaning, of purpose. As together we worship God and we in quiet unsung ways demonstrate what it is to love and to forgive. And this community is one in which St. Paul says we are renewed in the image of God our creator so that we may know that Christ is all and in all. He is the one above all else who has universal significance, the one who gives us life and hope. This week, let us live out the hope that we have in Jesus the Son. I pray that you will go from here this morning, not bowed down under the sun, but with your hearts and minds firmly fixed on Jesus, the Son of God. As we engage in the work, the relationships, the vocations to which we are called, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Amen.